God bless you sultry pace casers and welcome to episode 23 of the Blind By podcast for your weekly podcast hug. I'm very happy to announce that this podcast was included in a list on Radio Times which is an internet site, it used to be a magazine, I think it still is a fucking magazine, I don't know. But it was like the Radio Times best podcasts to listen to at the moment and this podcast was included on it which is class because that's international and I'm all about international cunts listening to this podcast if possible. And podcast was included alongside such podcast luminaries as Mark Maran who I've only listened to once or twice and uh he records in his garage near he interviewed President Obama. And I haven't I haven't listened to Mark Maron once or much. I kinda of, I stuck my head in once or twice. But people on the internet told me that he talks over his guests too much. So don't listen to him that much. I still listen to an odd bit of Bill Burr. I like the chaotic approach he has to his podcasts. And initially I hated the echo in in his podcast, but now it's grown on me. Um, to the point that when I listen to Bill Burr's podcast, I try and imagine the size of the room that he's recording it in based on what the echo of his voice sounds like. Such is my fanaticism for audio fidelity. I'm recording this podcast in my temporary studio at the moment. I haven't been back at my regular studio for a while because I'm moving it into a new space that will hopefully be even better than the first studio space. But I've got a tiny bit of an echo in here. Tiny bit. But I'm quite close to the microphone. My my current podcast setup as well is quite strange because it's because it's a temporary studio. My podcast microphone, um, I don't have a pop shield, which is um, a pop shield is a thing you put in front of your microphone for when you make pop, 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 popping sounds like that. So I don't have a pop shield. So instead, what I have is a glove over my microphone, and it, it's a glove of fragile masculinity. It's a bit like my uh, my my tin mug, my stainless steel mug from a couple of weeks back that uh, exposed my fragile masculinity. The glove that I have over this podcast mic is known as a shooter mitten. And basically what it was, I, I needed mittens, do you know? Because I like to keep my hands warm when it's outside, but I also don't like wearing gloves because then I can't touch my phone and so I'm like fuck that I need uh, I need I need something that allows me to touch my phone but also keeps the tops of my fingers warm so I'm like this has to exist and it does exist in the form of what's known as shooter mittens and what shooter mittens are are think of fingerless gloves right but there's a hood on the knuckle and it comes over and, and it covers the your fingers so you have the option of 
having fingerless gloves and then also mittens when you drag the hood over it. It's actually, yeah, if I was to analyse these gloves, if I was to go cultural Marxist on these gloves that I have, they completely expose a fragile masculinity because the the hood, you know, over this... it's Men don't want to wear mittens. Mittens are for for children and women. Okay, that is the... That's the cultural narrative around mittens. Mittens even sound... They don't even sound masculine, you know. They, they, it sounds like kittens. So men don't want to wear mittens. So what the companies have done is they've managed to appeal to our fragile masculinity by inventing shooter mittens. So, number one, the hood that comes over to protect my fingers from the cold, it's a bit like a foreskin. That's what it is. It's foreskin on a glove. And... Then here's the best part. You know, it's like like I said with my, my stainless steel Stanley mug that I had a couple of weeks back for looking for Yorty Ahern. These shooter mittens, they're not for me, a fucking cock, a man who's, who doesn't want to get his fingers cold on his bicycle. They're designed for soldiers. Shooter mittens are for when a soldier's hands are are cold so he keeps them warm unless until he sees an enemy and then he has to have, he has to engage his fingers and pull the trigger so you pull back the foreskin on this glove and it allows your fingers then to pull the trigger and kill your enemy fucking hell this week's podcast is sponsored by gloves so yeah I've got a shooter mitten this week over my microphone and this mitten is doing a very it's doing a very good job at maintaining audio fidelity and if I say a word that has a lot of P's in it you don't get that uncomfortable popping sound you know that you would get if the mitten wasn't present so what the fuck was I talking about yeah my current podcast setup so on the microphone I've got these fragile masculinity shooter mittens. And then underneath the microphone. First off the microphone. I don't have a, a handle. Or not a handle. I don't have um, a microphone stand. Because I'm in my temporary studio. So the microphone is resting on a children's illustrated bible. And a book which is uh, scripts of the comedy series The League of Gentlemen. And I have to say the children's illustrated bible is fucking fantastic. I do recommend that you buy a children's illustrated Bible. My one is uh, by D.K. Darling Kinderly or something. You'd know him. But it's fucking brilliant. It's actually really, really good. Because the Bible has some class enjoyable stories, let's face it. And when there's pictures, it's even better. Because you get to see loads of these drawings of Christ being all sad and pointing at things, you know. And it's split up between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament is crack. Because it's nuts. So that's my current podcast setup. If you're new to this podcast, I suggest going back to the start, please. Because that was a fucking seven minute rant about foreskin gloves, you know. And regular listeners are used to that. But if you've just happened upon this podcast I suggest you go back to the start so 
I had a, a I was having a little flick through the children's illustrated Bible. Um, I'm, do you know what? I must do a few Bible podcasts in a while because I enjoy I enjoy the Bible as an artifact of mythology, which is what it is, you know. Um, the Old Testament in particular. But I was looking at uh, I cracked open the children's Bible and obviously starts off Adam and Eve, right? And I was reading the fucking Adam and Eve story. And as you know, you know, I've mentioned before, I'm I'm a fan of we'll say Carl Jung and his archetypes and his collective unconscious. And I'm also a fan of Sigmund Freud and Freudian analysis. And I was looking at kind of the story of Adam and Eve and I couldn't help but kind of probe it from a Freudian perspective. And I was thinking about it like in terms of like when the Bible was written, right? There's this theory of now this this again, this is a fucking hot take. This is a hot take and when I say when I say hot take, it means, you know, just leave me ramble, listen to it, don't take it as scientific evidence. But some some say that uh, patriarchy, right, which is a society generally dominated by men and men's control over women. Some argue that patriarchy wasn't always the way with human beings. That when humans lived in a hunter-gatherer society, that it was much more egalitarian and men and women had kind of more equal roles, okay? And when patriarchy started to come into play, it only kind of started when... When humans discovered farming, right? When humans... I think I might have even dealt with this with a previous podcast, but... Basically, when humans discovered farming, uh, that meant that we could settle in one place. And farming also meant that we had surplus and we had land and the notion of property. And the notion of property meant handing things down to offspring. Before farming and property, we had territory that we freely roamed. We didn't really own anything. And when property became a thing, maybe 15, 20,000 years ago, the towns became a thing and cities became a thing and ancient religion tended to be polytheistic which meant that we worshipped many different gods and some say when, when, when humans started to live in towns and cities right, large communities that's when monotheistic religion became a thing monotheistic religion being the idea of one god and if you look at it historically, the whole one God thing started to become popular about 4,000 years ago in the Levant. The Levant, the area of the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East, where the Old Testament was born. And some say that monotheistic religion, from a cultural perspective, the reason it kind of echoed with people and worked is it came out of the first kind of large cities. These large cities being 
Ur and Babylon, which is now Iraq, places like that. So that's what, and, and that monotheistic religion, it echoed the political structure necessary for a large city to operate, which meant one ruler, an emperor, whatever. And to go Jungian on it, the structure of monotheistic religion echoes the political system necessary. But I couldn't help but notice that monotheistic religion is also very patriarchal. And that's what got me thinking about just how fucked up the Adam and Eve story is. So, we all know it because we were taught it since we were three years of fucking age in school. Adam and Eve living a lovely, perfect life in the Garden of Eden. And then... One day, Eve meets the snake, the devil. Uh, oh wait, no, they're in the Garden of Eden and God says, do what you want, lads. This place is class, it's for ye, I love ye. You're free, you get to live to be, a, how, as long as you want, you can live. Your life is heaven and this garden is heaven. Do what you want, except for this one tree. There's one tree, lads, and please don't go near this tree. So Adam and Eve are like getting on grand, enjoying the Garden of Eden and not fucking with this one tree. So one day, the snake comes along and says to Eve, the woman, the mind God is only a goal. Have a lash of that apple on the tree. Eat the apple off the tree. So Eve does it. God finds out. All hell breaks loose. Literally, actually, all hell does break loose. That's the, that's the first time I think I've ever used the platitude all hell breaks loose in a correct context because uh, I think hell became a thing after Eve ate the apple, didn't, didn't it? Yeah, humans were grand forever in the Garden of Eden. Then Eve ate the apple that the dev- devil told her to eat and then humans were born with original sin and hell became a thing. So all hell broke loose, literally. But anyway, so I was thinking about, you know, first of all, it completely demonizes women, right? It's like, we're getting on grand, but she ate the fucking apple because she's weak and she was tempted. But then I started to go at Adam and Eve from the Jungian and Freudian point of view. Now, the Jungian approach is, like I said, archetypes. Humans are very complex. We have brains and we have language. So we use imagery to communicate our kind of instincts. What Adam and Eve is about, I think, it it comes down to cuckolding. Eve made Adam a cuck, right? And we still see this word used today by racists calling other lads cucks but there was no apple right this is what I think the, the like from an archetypal perspective right I think the Garden of Eden story first of all there's no devil how does Satan present himself right a snake a phallic symbol a fucking penis right there's no apple either 
what the Garden of Eden story is about is it's a specific male patriarchal fear. Eve fucked another man, right? And the apple, the fruit, is the child. And Adam is faced with the anxiety of she's after fucking someone else and now I'm stuck with the child. I'm a cuck. I'm being cuckolded. I think that's what Adam and Eve is about. It's the male fear of... And like I said, remember, this story was written at a time when property was a thing, when 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 property, property started to become very important in human culture. And the fear of, of patriarchy kind of comes about when men are like, here's my fucking farm. Uh, I need a woman to give me a lot of sons so I can give this to my sons. And the great fear is, what if she fucks someone else? I don't know if it's my son or not. And I end up handing my property to someone else's child. And that's what the Garden of Eden story is. It's, it's the cuckolding of Adam. And the apple is the child. And the, the snake is another man's dick. And through this comes the great control of women. The narrative that women are not to be trusted. Women are sneaky. That you, and, and you see this across a lot of fucking religions. Sure, Jesus Christ. Islam went, went to fucking town with it. Do you know what I mean? Cover her up. Cover her up entirely, please. I can't have I can't have any snakes coming along to see her. Cover her up entirely. I don't want anyone knowing what she looks like and she can't be trusted so she can't talk to him. So they went apeshit with it. Um, but of course, you know, Islam, Judaism, the whole lot, they all kind of originate in the Old Testament and Adam and Eve. And that's my hot take on Adam and Eve. Adam's a cuck. He's a cock. And then to kind of probe it even even further. Like Adam and Eve they did two did two children, right? Uh Cain and Abel. Two lads, two brothers. Um actually, yeah. Actually that explains. Yeah, yeah, because you're always wondering, like, how how did uh, how did Adam and Eve have children? Because it essentially means that Adam fucked his own rib. So, Cain and Abel were Adam's cuckold children, and Satan was the dad. Snake Willie Satan was the dad. But anyway, to further kind of interrogate the theory of the Old Testament and. The notion of property. Like I said there. You know the man would have his property. And he'd hand it down to his two sons. The sons were important. He'd ha- he, and he'd divide up the land. Sure what did Cain and Abel do? One got jealous of the other and killed him. And that's often what happened. The dad would die. Patriarchally hand the, the property down to the sons. And then the sons would fucking kill each other. So that number one, one of them could come out with all the land, you know. How did I turn this into the Bible? How did I turn this into a Bible podcast? It wasn't intended to be that. I just wanted to glance upon it. There's another thing I was thinking too, as well, though, about the Old Testament and the 
the genesis, the creation theory, right? And one of the most absurd kind of things that's posited in the Bible is that God created the world in seven days, right? Now, as soon as you hear that, human logic says, well, that's bullshit. Because the world is massive and no one could do it in seven days. But then I started to think about quantum physics and time, right? Not even quantum physics and time, but... Like, if if you're playing a video game, right? Um, Like Grand Theft Auto. A day will pass in Grand Theft Auto and you could, like, you could follow your character around for a day and he's doing all his stuff in Grand Theft Auto and a day passes in Grand Theft Auto but for me playing it outside of his two-dimensional universe in my three-dimensional world and, you know, and my character in Grand Theft Auto is... He's knocking around the place and that's his reality. That's his, that is his reality with its own set of rules. But I'm outside the television looking at it in my 3D reality with smells. There's no smells in Grand Theft Auto, you know. But I've got smells and all these other senses. And I'm looking at this fabricated reality in Grand Theft Auto. And a day passes in Grand Theft Auto and it might take maybe 15 minutes in my time. But for my character's time, it's a full day. So then I started thinking, fucking hell. Because we know as well with modern kind of physics that time time as a, time as is kind of flexible and bendy, you know? And, you know, we experience time as just the simple passage of events. But shit can exist outside of time. So maybe... We're like in in a big Grand Theft Auto, and God is in his or or whatever God is. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe maybe God's a she or an it. And maybe it's just looking at us in a video game. And he did create it in seven seven days, because infinity to us could be a half an hour to him. Probably still a lot of bollocks though. Fuck the Bible. I don't want to talk about the Bible. Um, <clears throat> this podcast is supported by the generosity of people on Patreon. So if you're enjoying this podcast and you would like to contribute to it, please go to patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast and give a little monthly donation, please. And you don't have to. I'm just appealing to your soundness. You can quite happily go on listening to this podcast for free. But if you're enjoying it and you like to support independent artists, ask yourself, would you buy me one pint a month for five hours of content? And if the answer is yes, please go to patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. I'd really appreciate it. Also, subscribe to the podcast. Leave some nice ratings and reviews on iTunes or Acast. And, uh, yeah, just be sound. Rub a dog. So anyway, what do we talk about other than the fucking Bible? few people have been saying to me, uh, Blind by, how come you never talk about the podcast being number one anymore? The reason is, is that um, I just wanted to beat 
Brian Adams' record of 16 weeks. Uh, Brian Adams was 16 weeks in the charts with his song Everything I Do, I Do It For You from the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves soundtrack. I beat that and once that happened I was like, I don't want to focus on charts anymore. Now, we have been number one fairly consistently. Um, It kind of drifts in and out every week. So like I might be number one uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and then I'm number two and then I'm back to number one again. But I want to stop focusing on podcast charts because it's kind of silly and stupid and it goes against the the ethos of this podcast to be focusing on numbers like that you know and so I'm going to increasingly try and ignore the podcast charts which are irrelevant I said on Twitter that I would speak because last week I spoke about art, I spoke about impressionist art and I get good feedback from you, you seem to really enjoy it when I talk about art um, which for me is really eye opening it, it, it really proves to me that art is, it's kind of frightening to a lot of people because we're told that it's a lot more important than it should be and it isn't, art is just like you know, visual art is no different to music, as I said. Anyone can appreciate it. So, I have kind of a, a little hot take. Um, some arty-farty hot takes that I wouldn't mind exploring this week. And it starts with a, a kind of a, a satirical painter and engraver from the 18th century. From England, from uh, that goes by the name of William Hogarth. Actually, no. Before I get on to William Hogarth, because I just remembered, I wanted to talk about my weekend. Um, I gigged in Edinburgh for St Patrick's Day, and there's this gig we do every, every St Patrick's Day. I'd say for the past six years. We go to... There's two kind of traditions we have. Around St. Patrick's Day, we go to New York sometimes. And we gig in this place called the Mercury Lounge. At this Irish-American festival. And I love doing that. Like, we get paid fuck all for it. Because it's expensive to go over to New York. But we don't give a shit, you know what I mean? Um, Because you're getting a free three days in New York. And I love going to fucking New York. Uh, just walking around a lot of yanks. It's just weird, you know. I, 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 I get a bit of a culture shock from America and I, I thoroughly enjoy that. And when we're in New York, we always stay around <clears throat> near Chinatown, Canal Street. You just stay around Canal Street. And there's a place that I go to there called the Tenement Museum, which is, it recreates tenements from the 18th and 19th centuries. So I love walking around Chinatown, Hell's Kitchen, the Bowery, places like that. And empathising with history, you know. I haven't been to... We didn't go to New York this year. I think we went last year, if it wasn't the year before. But this year, we did our Paddy's Day gig in Edinburgh. In a pub called The Three Sisters. In Cowgate. Cowgate in Edinburgh, is a, it's it's weird. It's It used to be known as Little Ireland. Um, there was massive Irish emigration to Edinburgh over the past four or five hundred years 
And Cowgate was this almost underground kind of slum where the Irish lived. James Connolly was born there. And we gigged there. And the Three Sisters is this giant Irish super pub. And they have this Paddy's Day extravaganza, which is just... It's mayhem. It's like... There's an artist called Hieronymus Bosch. It's from about the 13th, 14th century. And Bosch used to paint these massive, detailed visions of hell. Incredible paintings. And the Three Sisters and Paddy's there reminds me of that. It's just lots of incredibly drunk Irish people packed into this fucking slum. This historical Irish slum. And they're just vomiting into each other's mouths. It's a a true spectacle. So we gig at this every Paddy's Day in Edinburgh. And it's one of those gigs too. Because we gig the Edinburgh Comedy Festival in August, we haven't done it in a few years, but because we do that gig, we have kind of a a chin-stroking, highbrow, arty-farty following in Edinburgh. And I always try and keep the Paddy's Day gig secret because it would be so disappointing for these people. Because we do this gig... We get shit-faced as well. And it's basically us puking on the crowd and the crowd puking on us. That's all I can describe the gig as. It's sweaty noise. And it's very cathartic. You know, I release a lot at that gig. So anyway, we did it there on on Paddy's Day and it was good crack. But what I wanted to talk about was the, the journey over, which was fucking surreal. So we fly from... Dublin to Edinburgh and this Paddy's Day a fucking snowstorm happened in Dublin and in Edinburgh so the plane that goes from Dublin to Edinburgh is what's known as a Fokker it's a small-ish lightweight propeller-driven airplane and it doesn't fly very high and I'm alright with flying I don't really get anxiety around flying because I've toured the world and shit so I'm kind of used to it But when I get into these fuckers, I'm always a little bit frightened because, I don't know, when you get into a propeller plane and it's kind of small, you're very conscious of how ridiculous flying is. You become very conscious of, I'm in a metal tube and those big giant spinning fucking blades are going to take me into the air and... It's all, it's, you know, you can see the puppet strings. You can, you know, you can see the hand going up Kermit the Frog's arse at that moment. And you become aware of how utterly irrational flying is. So you get a little bit anxious. So anyway, uh, first off, uh, Willie uh, three of us head over. Myself, Mr. Chrome and DJ Willie O'DJ. DJ Willie O'DJ, I don't know what happened. Um, his belly wasn't right or whatever. Willie O'DJ misses his flight. So, that's grand. We were only heading over with a laptop. Um, we had the songs on it, so me and Mr. Chrome were like, were like, okay, fuck it, we have to do the Edinburgh gig on our own. Uh, kind of sickened that Willie wasn't with us because, obviously, it's more crack if there's the three of us, but we were still able to do the gig. So we get onto this fucking airplane, and it's kind of delayed. Who's on the fucking plane with us? Jedward, right? 
Now, Jedward, if, because we've got international listeners, Jedward are like a, they're an Irish novelty group who have tall hair and they're just weird twins. So, me and Crom are sitting on the fucking plane, right? And we're two seats behind Jedward because we realised it. Jedward were gigging the same gig as us, so the venue had booked our flights as well. We were two seats behind Jedward. Now, we've no plastic bags on, so no one knows who the fuck we are. Then we look around, and a lot of the people on this plane are Jedward fans. The lads obviously maintain close contact with their fan base, and when they're doing a gig in Edinburgh or whatever, they talk to their fans and say we're going to Edinburgh uh, these you know here's here's the seats that I'm sitting on on the plane so all their fans who were exclusively female had also booked on this flight to go over and see the lads in Edinburgh so me and Crom are stuck in the middle of of Jedward and all these girls on a plane and nobody had a fucking clue who we were we certainly weren't going to fucking announce ourselves. And it was amazing. It was incredible to watch. Um, it was actually quite beautiful. Because the thing is with these girls is like, they probably would have been maybe 13 when they started to follow Jedward and become super fans. Now they're like 21, 22, 23. And they're women, do you know? And I kind of had this perception, you know, from the outside looking in of, like, you'd think that they're kind of idiots, you know. It's like, that's kind of fucking Jedward. What are you following them for? But it was actually really beautiful to see. It was actually this lovely, nice little kind of community thing. And all the girls knew each other. And Jedward were pure sound to all of them. Like, they knew them all by name. Uh, One girl uh, in front of me, I, I was sitting... In one seat, there was two girls in front of me, and then Jedward, uh, three seats up. One of them was nervous about flying, so they were all hugely supportive of each other, and the two lads were talking to him, and it was actually pretty nice to see. It was um, a very positive community, and they were just having fun, and this is what they like to do, and it was great. And one girl then, who was across the way from me, which I thought was brilliant, it's like, here, here's, a, here's a girl, 21, 22, who has made a decision to follow Jedward to Edinburgh. And all my prejudice and preconceptions would have been like, oh, she must be, she's not right in the head, or she uh, must be very silly. And this girl, you know, two seconds ago, she's there taking photographs with Jedward and pull his, pulling silly faces. Then, as soon as the plane kind of takes off, she whips out a, what was it, Jeff Buckley's biography, starts reading that and orders a neat Jameson, pure classy, and I was fucking gas. So then anyway, we get up into the plane, and the Aer Lingus fucking air hostess, they'd turned the Irishness up to 100 as well on Paddy's Day, Aer Lingus did. So they warn us that it's going to be a bumpy fucking flight, because we're flying in a fucking Fokker with propeller wings at about 15,000 feet, so we're just above the clouds, getting 
battered by wind. So it was a, an incredibly violent flight. And, oh man, when we descended in extreme turbulence, uh, it was fucking amazing. First of all, I was overcome with a kind of a gallows humour, a Samuel Beckett style gallows humour, where there was a part of me, a deep dark part of me that wanted to die on a plane with Jedward, just for the fucking news headlines, you know? Um, of course, that's quite a, sel- a, quite a quite a selfish thought, because there's other people on the plane, but this was the workings of my unconscious mind, not my conscious mind. My unconscious wanted to die on an airplane with Jedward, so I stuck in my earphones anyway as the, as the plane was getting ready to land. Now it's shaking fucking violently. It was a very unpleasant flight. I'm used to turbulence. Turbulence is something that's alright with me. I've done it enough times. But the other people on the plane were not okay with turbulence. Because turbulence is fucking terrifying. So it was shaking up and down. Drinks were flying around the place. And I threw on my earphones and I listened to a song by the band Primus and the song was called Too Many Puppies and if you know the song Too Many Puppies by Primus it's an incredibly loud aggressive heavy metal song Uh, so this was blasting in my ear this fucking almost like Slipknot fucking heavy metal song the plane is shaking like mad and I'm looking around me there was a, a girl beside me just bawling crying because of the turbulence to the left of me someone was blessing themselves and then Jedward were there with their fucking spiky stupid hair dressed identical to each other and there's all this terror and fear all around them and in my ears all I'm hearing is this very violent heavy metal music and Jedward start taking out their phones and making peace signs and pulling faces and doing crazy selfies and it was the most incredible music video that I've ever seen in my life. And it happened in reality. I was just thinking, what a perfect music video for a heavy metal song. A fucking plane going down. Everyone blessing themselves and crying. Drinks flying everywhere. And fucking Jedward with their spiky hair. Oblivious to the pain of the world. Marvelling and fucking orgasmic in the inevitable fucking death crashing into the ocean it was beautiful so the plane landed uh, myself and Chrome kind of whispered into each other's ears like we need to go and hang out with Jedward tonight they're gigging the same gig we need to fucking because obviously we weren't going to go up to Jedward and go how are you getting on lads we're the rubber bandits because I don't think the two lads would be able to handle that information with discretion they probably would have announced it and then uh, that's that's a hellish situation for us. We just want to mind our own business and be quiet and be fucking nobodies until the bags go on. So we tried to kind of get in contact with Jedward later, but it's impossible. You can't. They travel with their ma, who's their manager. And from what the venue told me, because we, we, we went doing our gig and then we asked the people in the venue, look, can you hook us up with Jedward? Because I wanted to... Just, you know, we we were backstage, we'd load a fucking drink, we'd our own private room. It's like, bring Jedward back here, have a few cans with us. Because we wanted to sit him down and kind of talk and just go, what's the deal, lads? 
what is the deal? Is this an act? Or are you really this enthusiastic all the time? And we couldn't get in contact with him because you're not allowed directly speak with Jedward apparently. You can if you're one of the fans, but it's like if you work in the industry or you're a promoter or a venue or another artist, you do not get to directly talk with Jedward. Which is beautifully strange. Um, and, you know, with all due respect, they're kind of, their star is in decline, you know. They're, not, they're, they're hardly as famous as they were fucking five years ago. And yet, they still, you know, they're still going around with these Mariah Carey rules. Fair play to them. Fair play to Jedward. Um, long may they continue being fucking mad bastards. So then we did the gig. It was good crack. Uh, I went to bed early with some coronas. And then, then what happened? I, uh, yeah, the fucking flight back was delayed by about six hours. And I was in Edinburgh Airport, which is a very depressing airport. It has a travel lodge aesthetic. Um, but I whipped out my laptop and I got about six hours of writing done for my upcoming book of short stories so I was very happy with that uh, six hours a piece to just fucking write so I used my time in that airport uh, correctly now let's talk a little bit about art I think actually I know I'm holding off the art now but we should do our ocarina pause Um, I don't have my ocarina because I'm in my temporary studio space so I'm essentially as well, like I said, I'm talking into a glove that's resting on a Bible. So every week, there are digital adverts inserted into this podcast, depending on your location. If you don't hear the adverts, you get to hear a Spanish clay whistle known as an ocarina, which I do not have in my possession this week. So I'll do, I'll whistle in the style of an ocarina, and that will be our digital angelus for this week. Okay, you ready? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression 
or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions, I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give better help a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible and it's suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindbuy. So you either heard a grown man replicating an ocarina with his lips or a recruitment ad for the SAS. So I want to talk about the artist William Hogarth. So Hogarth was an artist. uh, He was a painter and an illustrator that would have been based in London in the 18th century. He was knocking around about 1730. And what kind of, what distinguishes Hogarth is a few different things. He's, first of all, he made use of the printing press. A lot of his work was drawings or engravings that were printed and passed around amongst the public. That didn't really happen a lot beforehand. You know, you had paintings and if you wanted to see a painting you would go to a gallery to see it. And even then, if you wanted to see it in a gallery, you had to be kind of rich to have access to a gallery to see a painting. But Hogarth made use of the printing press and printed what... I suppose you'd call them morality... uh, morality artworks. His work was satirical. He would caricature scenes of urban life in the 18th century with a kind of a moral twist on it and what makes his work so important is that it's it's acts as almost a documentary evidence around the squalor and misery of the lives of people in the city of London during, during the industrial revolution his work focused on vice, um, prostitution, and in particular, uh, gin, the drinking of gin. Now, I mentioned gin in a previous podcast, but gin is essential to the work of Hogarth. In particular, two prints that are kind of were presented as a, as a diptych, you know, they were both worked off each other. Two prints called Beer Street and Gin Lane. And they depict the misery that befell London during the gin craze. Now, the gin craze was the frenzied, widespread 
consumption of gin that happened in the 1700s in the urban centres of Britain. There's a few reasons behind why that happened. Again, it's worth pointing out that up until the Industrial Revolution, um, humans didn't really have open access to spirits. Spirits were very rare, um, complicated things to make that required a lot of time. And then when the Industrial Revolution happened, vast quantities of gin uh, and other spirits were being made in mass quantities and it was very cheap and freely available so you had the first kind of onslaught of mass alcoholism you know it it really really ripped London to shreds gin did and what made gin popular the main reason is goes back to William of Orange now William of Orange is King Billy He's a Dutch, a Dutch man who ascended the, to the throne of England after winning at the Battle of the Boyne. The Boyne. Um, he's who the Orange men celebrate, King, King William of Orange. And he was Dutch, and he defeated the Catholic King James, and he was a Protestant. And gin is a Dutch drink. Geneva was the Dutch name for it. It's where the phrase Dutch courage comes from. So there was a kind of a nationalistic British identity to gin when King William ascended to the throne in England. Um, So gin was promoted from the throne as this British drink because they wanted to take attention away from the likes of French brandy and stuff like that. As well, a lot of the the, the grain, British grain, um, barley and whatever... The British government wanted to kind of up the consumption of British grain, so they it was it was of use to the British government to promote the distillation of gin because it meant that this grain was going to be used up in gin production. They also put tariffs on foreign spirits. So this led to the gin craze. Um the other thing too, the gin that people were drinking back then. It's not necessarily what you and I would recognise as gin today. Gin today is essentially, you know, pure alcohol soaked in herbs and botanicals. The gin that people were drinking in the slums of 1700s London, it'd be closer to kind of fucking putchine. You know, it was just... It, it Gin back then was a blanket term given to any distilled grain alcohol Um, also as well the British government made licensing for gin distillation incredibly easy if you wanted to distill gin all you needed to do was apply for a license it did not necessarily have to go through so gin was fucking everywhere it was incredibly cheap and the average Londoner was drinking two pints of gin a week which is fucking massive gin as well was also it was being counterfeited. It was they were mixing turpentine with gin to create that juniper flavour. And it was like a giant heroin epidemic. It fucking tore London to shreds. 
Now, there is a one argument that could be made too. Was it Jin's fault or was it the horrible conditions in Industrial Revolution Britain? Because there is a, a theory of addiction. There's an experiment. It's called the Rat Park experiment that's done uh, around addiction where they basically get two populations of rats in two different cages and in one cage they have a small number of rats or maybe even one rat and that rat has no amenities he's got no wheels to play on he's just a rat in a fucking cage and he's got two water bottles one of them is laced with cocaine and one of them is straight water the rat in this cage will continually go to the cocaine laced water until he gets a heart attack and he dies then they get another cage which they call rat park in this cage there's several rats they have lots of space they have plenty of amenities plenty of food they have happy pleasant lives they too have access to two water bottles one with water one laced with cocaine in the rat park model the most of the rats tend not to take so much cocaine that they die because their environment keeps them happy they don't have a negative environment therefore addiction doesn't flourish so under the rat park theory of addiction did the gin craze happen because of the free availability of gin or was it the horrible dehumanized conditions that londoners had to live in in the 1730s because they had no fucking workers rights they'd nothing they were working in factories 17 18 hours a day no fucking sanitation living in tenements it was awful so what are they going to do when they get addicted to gin gin had some very colourful nicknames back then as well some gas nicknames Um, it was called Madame Genevieve Lady's Eye Water Cock My Cap and my favourite King Theodore of Corsica which is just a fucking brilliant name so anyway where does William Hogarth fit into all this uh, gin business? So Hogarth had two prints, Beer Street and Gin Lane. And they were brought in. The British government introduced a thing called the Gin Act, right? And the Gin Act was the British government's attempt to curb the massive consumption of gin and what it was doing to society. So Hogarth created these two prints incredibly detailed scenes almost like um a where's wally and on the left it has beer street and on the right it has gin lane and in beer street it shows a city scene where the residents are just casually drinking beer and it's a very happy scene people are seen kind of going to work going about their business um, leading prosperous lives but then you contrast this with the illustration of Gin Lane and it's quite different and the most striking thing in Gin Lane is this lady sitting on, a, sitting on steps and all over her body she's got syphilitic sores and her bare tit is hanging out and dangling off her arm is her toddler 
who's after falling off, you know, he's halfway falling off the steps, ready to fall to his death. And that character, that woman, whose child is dying because she's so fucked on Jane, is apparently based on a true story of a woman called Judith Dufour in 1734. And... She sent her two-year-old child to a workhouse just so that child could get a new set of clothes. And as soon as the child came out, she strangled the child and sold the clothes for Jane. Um, also in Jane Lane, there's scenes of prostitution. There's scenes of fucking funeral undertakers burying people into the ground. It's... A moral tale against the dangers of gin. Hogarth was kind of promoting the government line of gin is bad. Obey the gin act. Drink beer. You'll have a better life. But one thing that interests me and specifically about William Hogarth and the composition of his paintings and his illustrations is how they're echoed in the work of a director... 20th century director Stanley Kubrick in particular his film Barry Lyndon now Barry Lyndon is a class film to watch if you haven't seen it Barry Lyndon is it's set in the 17th or 18th century and it's filmed in Ireland right now Stanley Kubrick if you're not familiar with his work he would have directed Clockwork Orange um, and Full Metal Jacket he was a very obsessive filmmaker. But what sets Barry Lyndon apart is he obsessively studied paintings and illustrations of the era of the 1700s and the 1800s and tried to recreate them perfectly within his film. And every scene in Barry Lyndon is like a painting. In that, the scenes kind of, they visually tell a story in the way that William Hogarth's paintings and illustrations did as well. And there's quite a few scenes in Barry Lyndon that are directly copied from Hogarth's paintings, straight up copied. Because that's what fucking Kubrick was trying to do. Now Barry Lyndon, it's got a mad history. He filmed it in Wicklow and... It follows the story of, I think it's called the Seven Years' War, which was a war between Britain and France. Could be wrong with that now, but the film contains a lot of British redcoat soldiers. So when Kubrick was filming it in Wicklow, it was filmed in 1975, which would have been at the absolute height of IRA activity. The IRA sent him several death threats to get the fuck out of Ireland because they're like, who's this cunt from America? filming scenes with British redcoats in Ireland get out we're trying to do a war and you have your propaganda here Uh, Kubrick was quite stubborn with the Ra he did eventually leave but another thing that distinguishes the film Barry Lyndon from all others and what makes it so utterly bizarre and I recommend you watch it it's three hours fucking long but it is a visually stunning fucking film Kubrick refused to use artificial light in Barry Lyndon alright if you're familiar with filmmaking you have to fucking light a scene because cameras 
require extra light to, to allow light into the lens Kubrick was like fuck that um, this is a film based in the 17th 18th century I'm not using any artificial light so when you look at outdoor scenes in Barry Lyndon you the clouds fucking change light every two seconds it feels very strange he has films in that scene that are filmed with nothing but pure candlelight and how he pulled it off is he had to get an actual camera from NASA that was designed for filming on the dark side of the moon and Kubrick had to use a NASA camera for filming on the moon just to film Barry Lyndon without artificial light and what you end up with is this truly visually fucking stunning film unlike anything else because of this especially the interior scenes by candlelight and if you want to understand and appreciate 17th, 18th century painting Barry Lyndon the film is actually a great place to start another thing too is because Kubrick was working with these very uh, with low light and what's known as on the camera a very high aperture which means that you open the aperture of the camera to let as much light in as possible when you do that with a camera it it requires the actors to be very very still they must be still or else the image will appear blurry whether intentional or not intentional or not this technique echoed the 17th and 18th century paintings where the subjects in the paintings had to remain still because they're being fucking painted but with Kubrick they're not being painted but the aperture on the camera is so wide they may as well be painted that was a long indulgent rant about Jin William Hogarth and Stanley Kubrick and I hope you enjoyed it now before I go, I'm going to try and answer a couple of your questions because that was a this this has been a long ranty podcast. Anthony Mulcahy asks, "How about a hot take on the TV license issue?" Yeah, the TV license is a bit fucking weird, isn't it? What is it now? 175 quid a year. Um, I agree with the TV license in principle, right? I I agree. With having an independent, no, no, not independent. I, I agree with having a national broadcaster, right? That is an important thing. It is an important thing to have a national broadcaster that we should all support through tax, right? The problem with the TV license is how it's being spent by the fucking national broadcaster. Like, do we really need to spend the like does the TV license need to be spent on fucking shit that you can see on other channels I mean in the 80s RTE was important because you needed to you know you couldn't see a lot of people didn't have cable they just had RTE 1 and 2 so RTE needed to actually purchase and buy films and fucking British TV shows and American TV shows which are pure expensive but what's the fucking point when you can see them on other channels? How many people are left in Ireland with two channels? Like, it's just absurd. So, I think, like, if it was up to me, RTE should stop spending money 
on shit that can be seen on other channels and exclusively use the TV license for creating 100% Irish content only. Um, as well, here's another issue that I have. The whole point of a fucking national broadcaster too is you should like when you're funded by the public that funding should be for creative things you should be able to make shit that definitely will fail like the abbey theater the abbey theater receive public funding and the abbey theater will commission a play that may sell no tickets but has great creative merit and that's really important for fucking art I mean, how many people went to see Beckett in his day? Not many. And Beckett, Beckett's shit was fucking certainly not commercial. But as art, it's hugely fucking important and needed to be funded. So I would like to see RTE move towards a model where genuinely groundbreaking, creative Irish programming is made. Artistic fucking programming that takes risks and pushes boundaries. And programming that... Like, the best shit isn't going to be watched by a lot of people. That That's just the way it is. If something is challenging and new, a lot of people aren't going to watch it. And an environment should exist where that stuff can be funded and made because it's important for art and culture. TG4, they're doing all right job of it. <clears throat> but what passes for, we'll say, RTE and entertainment these days... Some of it's fucking woeful. Some of it's really, really bad television. And that's what the license fee is being used for. So, I do agree with the license fee. I don't agree with how it's used. As well, in fairness too, there's too much management in RTE. They're very top-heavy, and a lot of money is going to management. Do you know? So, we should be striving to preserve our national broadcaster because I do fear that it'll disappear we should be striving to preserve it and democratically kind of asking for more riskier content that is given space to fail and is actually creative and that's how we use our money and stop fucking spending money on shit that you can see on BBC or shit that you can see on Channel 4 or shit that you can see online that's really really pointless who are you doing it for? Ten people who have two channels who aren't going to watch it anyway. I just don't get that. Laura Brady asks, Have you got any ghost stories, either from personal experience or family? Do you know, I'd love you to send in some ghost stories, please. Ghost stories or UFO stories, please send them in on Twitter or on the Patreon and I'll read them out. Because they're dead interesting. Have I got any? When I was about 10, I was outside. um, I was outside. I just realized now that the person that I was, that I saw this, this, this with only died two years ago. Uh, One of my best friends and I lost him to heroin. But... Yeah, fucking hell, this is weird now that that just came into my head. Yeah, when I was uh, about 10 years of age, I was uh, hanging around out in the road near my house, and me and my buddy looked across 
in the distance and we saw um, what appeared to be a white Grim Reaper character kind of digging up the ground in the distance and then when we looked back it was gone in two seconds and we both saw it and it scared the living fuck out of us and we didn't know what it was and it was very strange and I'm sure there was a rational explanation but the reason I paused there is when that came into my head I just realised that the dude that I saw that with only he died two years ago a very very dear friend of mine Um, three of my brothers saw a floating monk down in Limerick uh, near where what I mentioned in a previous podcast where I believe the original location of St. Munchen's Church is yeah they were all hanging around on a wall and all three of them swear blind that a, a monk uh, in a, in full gear floated past them and went straight into a wall so they're the only two ghost stories I have I don't know what the deal is with ghosts. I don't know. But if you have any decent stories, send them in. Um, I don't really believe in that type of stuff. But, like I said, I witnessed with my own fucking eyes a white Grim Reaper-style character digging up the ground. And I witnessed it for about three seconds, a bit longer, maybe five or six seconds, stared at it, said to my body, what the fuck is that? What is that? It's night time. That's very odd. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's illuminated. It shouldn't be illuminated because the area we're looking at is pitch black. And then we looked away and looked back and it was gone. So that was odd. Last question. Cullum asks, what would you do if you won the lottery? If I won the fucking lottery, I would pump lots and lots of money into making creative projects. I would... Because, like, making TV and shit is fucking expensive, you know? Um... I would use that money to make high budget feature films and television that I fund um, out of whatever mad idea comes into my head and I'd have nobody to answer to and I'd have no one pulling the purse strings saying no we need this to be more commercial I'd just be like I'm making this because I can afford it and I'm going to lose a load of money on it but it doesn't matter I'm going to make some mad TV or a mad film that's what I would do if I won the lottery pump it into creativity because the worst thing about working in film and TV is somebody is investing a lot of money in it usually a TV channel and when people invest money in something they expect financial return and in order to get financial return it means that you're forced to make the thing that you're making you have to make it be somewhat commercial and to make something commercial you have to dumb it down and you have to use cliche and you never truly get to make um, weird art. That's what I enjoyed about my book of short stories. With a book, you can kind of... The medium of the book allows you to truly be creative and not worry too much about it being commercial. Because essentially what sells it is the cover. And the front cover on my book, Gospel According to Blind Boy, very commercial cover. The name of it, the Gospel According to Blind Boy. And it's got my fucking 
stupid bag face on the front. It's a very commercial cover. But but on the inside, I could be as creative as I liked with no with no boundaries. But with TV, different story. Here's a hundred grand, buddy. Make me that money back. I don't care. Make some fart jokes. And that's how that works. So I'll leave you go now because the podcast is 69 minutes, which is a little bit too long. Go in peace. Have a bit of crack. Um, I think next week or in the coming weeks, I'll go back. I'll talk a bit more about mental health because I haven't spoken about mental health in this podcast and I haven't spoken about it in the podcast before. I focused on art. Um, also as well you might notice the tone of this podcast and last week's podcast it's you're, it, there's still a bit of a podcast hug but I'm slightly more energetic I think and it's something I'm noticing myself and this is just because I'm, I'm recording in, in a temporary studio and my posture as well isn't when I record in my regular proper podcast studio I'm almost horizontal when I talk I sit back in my swivel chair and I'm highly relaxed and I speak in a very a low measured fashion but for this podcast the past couple of weeks because I'm in a temporary space I'm kind of hunched forward in I don't know more of an engaged conversational mode so the pacing of my voice is a little bit quicker so hopefully in a couple of weeks when I get my shit sorted and get back and set up my new studio which will be comfortable we can return to a more measured slower tone hopefully I'm also a little bit paranoid about the echo in this room which you probably can't hear but I can so go in peace enjoy yourselves and as always I like to view this podcast as a collaborative effort so if you have suggestions, if there's stuff that you want me to talk about, if you want me to do some new shit or return to some older shit in the previous podcasts, let me know. Let me know and we'll work it out. Uh, go and have a lovely week. Enjoy the enjoy the longer evenings. That's fucking lovely, isn't it? Enjoy the slight rise in temperature. Feel the positivity of that. Look after yourself. God bless. Oh, it ended perfectly where the piano ended on my computer. Isn't that serendipitous? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.